This morning, I want to uh, take a little different approach to the resurrection. Um, a lot of times we'll talk about the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. Today, I want to talk about experiencing the power of the resurrection through Christ's last words on the cross. Um, a lot of times, people have the opportunity to share last words before they pass on. I remember reading an article in a newspaper about Richard Versali. He was an opera singer with the New York City Metropolitan Opera. And during his performance, he climbed up on this high ladder above the stage for a special scene that he was going about to perform, and he sang these words. Too bad you can only live so long. And at that very moment, Versali fell off the ladder, and he died on the spot. He couldn't have known that morning when he woke up that those would have been the last words he spoke. See, in every life, there comes a time, there comes a point when that life is going to come to an end. We all will have a last meal. We'll all take a last breath. And of course, maybe if we're lucky, we can give a last statement if we're so blessed. We may have the luxury of knowing what our last statement may be, but then on the other hand, we may not. Because no one knows for certainty when the end's going to come. But I think we will all die pretty much as we have lived. And a lot of times the statements at people's death seem to tell us a lot about how they lived. There was one very successful businessman who opened up a chain of restaurants across the country. And when his time came to die, his family gathered around his deathbed. And he realized he only had seconds to live. And he called everybody in nice and close. And he was so weak. And everyone leaned forward to hear what he would say. And in a faint whisper, they could barely hear it. He said, make sure you slice the ham thin. That tells you a lot about that individual, doesn't it? That summed up his life. Lou Costello of Abbott and Costello had a strawberry ice cream soda as his last meal. And the last words he was recorded to have said were, this was the best ice cream soda I've ever had. <laughs> See, history tells over time of famous people who have been able to give their last statements. Or infamous, you may say. The atheist Voltaire, who is one of the most aggressive antagonists against Christianity, he wrote a lot of different works and books to try to undermine the Christian church. He once said of Jesus Christ, curse the wretch. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice. It took 12 apostles to raise up. But as we know, Voltaire was less than successful. In fact, the nurse who attended on his deathbed remarked this, she said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not watch another atheist die. According to the physician who was sitting with Voltaire at the time of his death, he cried out, 
in utter desperation with these words, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. And then I will go to hell and you will go with me, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Hardened to the end. Voltaire pretty much died the way he lived, miserably. And yet, contrasting that with those who have known the Lord, you think of in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, we see Stephen being martyred, the first Christian martyr of the Christian church. And as he was being stoned, and as those stones were coming down, palmating his body, and his life was draining away, it says he said this, Look, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a glorious thing to say at your last statement. The final words of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, were this, I see earth receding and heaven is opening. God is calling me. See, as we've considered the last words spoken by some of these people throughout history, I want us to look together this morning at seven statements, the last statements of Christ, the most famous last words of all time. We know that these words were spoken as Jesus was crucified on the cross. If you think about it, death by crucifixion was no picnic. It was literally death by suffocation. You were nailed to a cross and you had spikes driven through your your hands and your feet. And that's not what killed you. What killed you was your inability to push yourself up anymore so you could breathe. So your, your legs would collapse and it would crush your lungs. And over a period of time, you would literally die slowly. It was meant to be a torturous death. It wasn't meant to be quick. People hung sometimes for days on the cross before they died. And actually, the person would die when they could no longer breathe. Breathing was very difficult. Think how hard it was to speak. And yet, Christ made seven statements that I want to cover quickly this morning with you. Because I think through these seven statements, we can truly see the power of the resurrection through the statements of Christ on the cross. The first statement there, Father, forgive them. Think about it. As Jesus hung on the cross, he gave these seven profound statements. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You can find that in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The fact that Jesus' last words on the cross consisted of a prayer probably doesn't surprise us much. I mean, he had always been a man of prayer. Even those who generally refuse to pray at all, well, usually when they're in a tight spot or in an hour of crisis, they will pray. But I I would have expected Christ to pray something like, Father, help me. Or even his later statement that we're going to look at in a few moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then, knowing Jesus like we do, it's only fitting that he should say what he said in the order that he said it. He did not pray in that dark hour for his loved ones first. Or for his friends. Or for his family. Who did he pray for? He prayed for his enemies. He modeled exactly what he taught. 
Remember when we went through Matthew chapter 5, verse 44? Here's what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Those are the words he modeled that very day on Mount Calvary as he gave his life up for us. Jesus had told Peter to forgive 70 times 7. Now he was doing just that. But when we pray under such circumstances, I don't know about you, but usually my prayer is, Lord, help! I need help! I'm in a situation here. God, don't you see what's going on? When Samson came to his dying hour in the Old Testament, he used his great strength to destroy his enemies. In contrast, Jesus showed meekness. He showed humility. He showed power under constraint. We also see from this example of Jesus that no one is beyond the reach of prayer. No one is beyond the reach of prayer. That should encourage our hearts today. Jesus was actually praying for the very people who had whipped him, who had scourged him, who had put the crown of thorns on his head, who crucified him. I mean, talk about loving your enemies. I mean, who could have seemed more hard-hearted than these people? Yet, Jesus prayed for them. I'm sure all of us, in our minds right now, we can think of somebody in our minds that we've been praying for and we think, they're never going to come to Christ. They're too hard. Never. Not going to happen. I want you to follow the example of our Lord on the cross. No matter how hopeless it may look, keep on praying for that person. Don't give up hope. And Jesus also recognized the enormity of their sin. Even if they didn't, (laughs) they were mocking him as he was praying for them. It was as if Jesus were saying, Father, forgive them, for they need forgiveness, and they need it desperately. Forgive them, for they have committed a sin that is wicked beyond comprehension. They killed the very Son of God. Remember when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, he spoke of the fact that some of those present were personally involved in the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What was the reaction? It says, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. That phrase appears only in the New Testament. It means to pierce. It means to stab. It depicts something that happens suddenly or unexpectedly. See, these folks, as they listened to Peter's sermon, it dawned on them that they had been responsible for the very death of the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. I mean, can you imagine even being there at that time, but then having a part in it and feeling that guilt of actually killing God's Son, an innocent person, the one whom you had longed for for centuries, the one whom the hope of the nation was put upon. He'd finally come. And then they realized personally that they had just killed him. 
Instead of welcoming him, they rejected him, and they handed him over to their bitter and hated enemies, the Romans, for execution. And they realized that they had done it personally. And they asked, what should we do? So we know that this prayer that Jesus prayed on Calvary, ultimately, it was answered. It was answered. Maybe you're praying for somebody right now to see his or her need for God. Maybe you brought that friend to church. There's no spiritual interest in things at all. I want to encourage you to keep praying for that individual. Don't give up. Remember, next to Jesus were two criminals being crucified. We looked at this Friday night at our Good Friday service. And they were more than just common thieves. They possibly were revolutionaries, even like Barabbas was. Because it was pretty serious for them to be crucified. They were militant. They were, they were trying to overthrow the power of Rome through violence and anarchy. And they were there for their personal crimes. That's who was crucified on each side of Jesus. But Jesus was there for the crimes of all humanity. They were there against their wills. But he was there willingly. They could have escaped. Or they could not have escaped, but he could have. Just with one word to heaven, the angels could have come and taken him off that cross. They were held to their crosses by nails. But as so many people have written about and sung about, he was held to the cross by his love. It's fascinating how these three men reacted as they looked death squarely in the face. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, the two thieves momentarily forgot their personal pain and they joined in the chorus of the voices of the onlookers around Christ. They said things like, he saved others, but he can't save himself. (laughs) Oh, so this is the king of Israel. This is the king of the Jews. Let him come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. Look at him. He trusted God. Let God show his approval by delivering him. For he's the one that said, I am the son of God. And this mockery and this unbelief must have just driven just a piercing blow to Christ's heart. Even here on the cross, while he was giving up his life, they persisted in their mocking Christ. And he was there atoning for the very people who were spewing out venom his way. Matthew's gospel tells us that both thieves joined in this mockery with the crowd. And yet Luke, over in Luke 23, 40, it says that one of them joined in, but then he was rebuked by the other. What a contradiction. It wasn't a contradiction, it was a conversion. Something happened to one of those thieves on the cross. Something significant happened to change the heart of one of those thieves hanging next to Jesus, bringing him to his spiritual senses. See, that's how salvation happens. Salvation doesn't happen by talking somebody into the kingdom of God or walking somebody through a track or, or, you know, preaching at somebody. All those things are part of it. They're tools that God uses. But ultimately, it's God that has to convert that heart. This one thief had watched with amazement, probably, as Jesus suffered the same crucifixion that he and the other 
had gone through. And yet he didn't complain. There was no angry protest or cursing from Christ. See, this thief saw something different in Christ. And then when Christ opened his mouth and he breathed those unbelievable words, Father, forgive them? Are you kidding me? That must have just done something in that thief's heart. His rebellion and his bitterness and his anger, all that no doubt had driven him all these years, just melted away because God converted him. The second statement I see here as Christ is hanging on the cross, today you will be with me. See, the first words that Jesus uttered from the cross consisted of a prayer for his enemies, but his second statement was an answer to prayer. It was an answer to prayer. It was an answer addressed to one person as he hung there on that cross. Jesus spoke to him as as if he was the only person there in the whole world. And that one person was the thief. I mean, what joy must have filled this man's heart when he heard these words? Can't help to notice the man's immediate faith. Look at Luke 23, 42. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say, hey, Jesus, remember me if you're going somewhere. If. He didn't say that. He said, when. It shows his faith. It's significant that Jesus said that this before his triumphal cry, it is finished. See, God had everything planned out perfectly, timed right down to the, the words Christ spoke. Before all the supernatural phenomenon happened, the darkness during the daylight, before the veil was torn from top to bottom, it would seem at this moment that this thief, who only had come alive just spiritually, just moments before this, had more spiritual insight than any of Jesus' closest followers. I love the way this new convert hanging on the cross next to Christ defends Jesus to the other thief. He says in Luke 23, 40 and 41, Don't you fear God even when you are dying? We deserve to die for our evil deeds, but this man, he hasn't done anything. He's innocent. Seconds old in his newfound faith, this thief who's forgiven now is already speaking up Jesus. He's speaking about Christ. That's a lot more than his seasoned followers were doing at this very moment. Where were they? And you know what? That's typical. That's typical of of what churches are made up of today. Often those who know the most do the least in our churches. While those who know the least do the most just seems the way it is. Well, both of these men heard the words of Christ as they hung next to him on the cross. Both saw his flawless, incredible example. Both were dying and they both needed forgiveness. One unrepentant thief died as he had lived. Hardened, indifferent. The other thief repented turned from his sin, believed, and as a result, joined Jesus in paradise. I mean, that's the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? Hearing the same message, one man will listen with indifference, yet another man will have his eyes open to the need and will believe. It's truly a miracle. 
Third statement I see here, when Christ looks down and says, Woman, behold your son. At the foot of the cross, there was Jesus, his mother Mary, along with some other women, and the apostle John, the story tells us. I mean, just stop and think, those of you who are parents, can you imagine what's going through Mary's heart right now? I mean, this is her son. This is the baby that she gave birth to. I mean, for most parents, most mothers certainly, it's exceptionally painful to watch any child suffer, let alone their own. I have an issue even when we go back with Will and Crystal and the grandkids and they get in trouble and they got to get spanked. You know, I just got to bite my tongue. I got to leave the house. I can't, you know, be part of that. It's just tough to, to see and watch. Oh, they, need it. they need it. Trust me, they need it. They need the discipline. But as a grandparent, I don't want to see my grandkids getting spanked or getting in trouble. It's hard to watch. Well, think how Mary felt. Imagine Mary as she looked up at Jesus. Here he is hanging on the cross. He's beaten. He's marred. Some people say he, he, you could barely even tell he was a human being is how bad his face looked. His body was traumatized by scourging. That was her son. The forehead that she used to kiss when he was a little baby is now lacerated from a crown of thorns. His hands that she once held in hers are now pierced and they're bloodied by the spikes. I mean, think how Mary felt as she witnessed this brutal event. The interesting thing about the Word of God is it takes everything into consideration, even Mary's feelings. See, some 30 years before this time, before Mary is sitting there at the foot of the cross, when she had first taken little baby Jesus into the temple to dedicate him, a man by the name of Simeon did not want to die until he saw the Messiah. And Luke 2.29 says, When Simeon saw Jesus, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He knew that Jesus, that little baby that Mary held in her hands, was the Messiah. And Jesus was there for a dedication. And then listen what happens. He turns to Mary and he gestures toward Jesus and he says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Then he said this to Mary. Listen to this. I mean, how would you like to hear me say this at a baby dedication here in our church? Here's what he said. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I mean, can you imagine this poor mother bringing her newborn baby to the temple to be dedicated? And this man says, (laughs) your heart's going to be pierced. You're going to feel a lot of pain. I bet you she didn't really know what he was talking about then. But I bet you here at the foot of the cross, she reflected on that. She realized, wow. all came to pass. On one occasion when Jesus was teaching, someone said, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to speak with you, Jesus. And you remember the reply, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Almost seems rude in our culture that he would reply in such a way. 
Then he looked at the disciples there and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brother. See, you have to understand, Jesus Christ himself did not exalt his mother. He never did. Instead, he took the opportunity to stress the importance of doing the Father's will. Some churches got it all backwards. They take the mother of Christ and they exalt him right up there with him. That's not what Jesus would have wanted. That's not what God desires. The sword pierced a little deeper into Mary's soul, probably when she heard those words. And now, as Mary looked up and witnessed her son hanging on the cross, I believe that sword even pierced all the way through her soul, thinking, wow, this is my son. Perhaps for the first time, she realized that Jesus was not her child, but Jesus was God's. Maybe for the first time, Mary began to grasp the fact that this was not simply just her firstborn son, that this was God Almighty in the flesh. I think it all came into focus for her at that moment. And then the Lord gave his third statement from the cross. Looking down at Mary and John, he saw his mother. And he said, woman, behold your son. What was he saying? He was saying, he's not referring to himself. He's referring to John. He's saying, hey, as the oldest, I've been able to take care of you, mom, up to this point. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. And he's giving care of his mother over to John. Because Joseph probably is already dead at this point. We don't know, but he's nowhere to be found. He must have died. Jesus was saying, John, take care of my mother. And after that, he said, John, I'm committing her to you. From that hour on, John took care of Mary, took her into his home. And even as the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, he was thinking about the needs of his mother and her future on earth. The fourth statement. Eli, Eli, lama sabatini. At noon... You've got to remember, darkness fell suddenly over the earth. This was a supernatural event, beloved. Can you imagine if all of a sudden it was dark outside? Wouldn't you be a little concerned? You'd be wondering, what's going on? Piercing through that darkness was the fourth statement of Christ as he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. In other words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, there's no writer alive that would have had his heroes say words like this. They kind of surprise us. It's hard to fathom. In some mysterious way, a way that we can't even fully comprehend as human beings, during those awful hours on the cross, the Father was pouring out the full measure of his wrath against sin. Because on Christ was imputed the guilt of our sin. And he was suffering the punishment for the sins of us on our behalf. Yet he was perfect and never sinned. He was the recipient of that wrath of God. 
And it was his own son. That's hard to comprehend. God was punishing Jesus as if he had committed personally every wicked deed and every sin that every person will ever commit who will ever put their faith and trust in him. And in doing so, he could forgive and treat those redeemed ones as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. Think about it. Jesus accomplished in six hours, beloved, what would have taken us the rest of eternity to never accomplish the forgiveness of our sins. Scripture clearly teaches Jesus did bear the sin of the world. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, beloved, we are healed. Spiritually, spiritually, we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Alfred Edersheim, a biblical scholar, said this, He disarmed death by burying its shaft in his own heart. And thereby death, thereby death had no more arrows. I mean, you would think when something of that major consequence was happening, when that was happening at the cross, you'd think people would just stand there in awe. But as we read, read the crucifixion account, we realize that the mockery continued. It continued to the very end. Even as he was bearing the sins of the world and crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, they had no interest at all. People were laughing, people were mocking, they were gambling, they were acting as if nothing important were taking place at all. When in fact the most significant event in human history was unfolding right before their eyes. Fifth statement. You find the next words Jesus gave at the cross in John 19, 28 to 30. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said this, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop, and they put it in his, next to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The fifth statement that Jesus made from the cross, I thirst, was the first from the lips of our Lord dealing with his own personal needs. Took to number five before he got to his personal needs. Scientists tell us when you die of thirst, it's one of the most agonizing deaths that there is. Because basically, all of the cells of your body are just screaming for liquid, and you have none. And the pain gets worse, and the body cramps up, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. 
And this was a thirst that was produced by a tremendous loss of blood that Christ had gone through, through his persecution and his execution. It was a thirst produced by a man who had literally borne the sins of the world. It was a thirst where no, no other man had ever known before. Can you imagine the creator of the universe, creator of everything we see around us? God Almighty saying, I thirst. The very one who created water was crying out for just a little water to quench this insatiable thirst that he had. Reminds us of the other, the, the humanity of Christ. I mean, we know at Christmas, we sing about and we teach about that God became man. He came down to earth. The Almighty God became a simple little fetus. He was born and he received nourishment from his mother. One writer calls him deity in diapers. I like that. God became a man. But let's not forget that while he was indeed a man, he was not a sinful man like you and I. He was a man with no sin at all, the Bible says. Yet he voluntarily chose to experience the limitations of this human body. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8 sums it up this way. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. That phrase, he humbled himself, you could translate that, he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? His deity? No. He was still God. Remember we sing the Christmas carol, veiled in flesh the Godhead See, hail the incarnate deity. He humbled himself, he emptied himself, but he didn't do away with his deity. You might say he didn't allow himself to enjoy the privileges of it. He did not void his deity, but he veiled it, the Bible says. And he walked around with people like you and I, and he experienced what men and women, as, as we as humans, experience every day. The Bible says as a young man he increased in wisdom and stature. We read of Jesus being tired and sleepy and hungry and sorrowful and even angry on one occasion. These are all human experiences. But with Jesus, none of these experiences ever was sinful in any way, shape, or form. Think about this. Is your body racked with pain? So was his. Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever been misjudged or maybe misrepresented? So was he. Have you ever had those who are nearest and dearest to you turn away? So did he. We have to understand that he has been in a place like us so many times. He knows what it's like. We have a God, beloved, that can relate to us. He's not some God off in some solar place far away and doesn't have anything to do with us. No, he's a personal God and he wants to know you personally. He's been here. Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 says, Therefore it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and his sisters, so that 
he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that could take away the sins of the people since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation. He is able to help us when we are being tempted. Can't help but read that. Think of when we read that, I thirst. Think of John 4, when that woman at the well, and Jesus, the other time he uttered those same words, I thirst. And that woman was fascinated with the dialogue that she had with the Savior. And he said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the well. He was not saying that if you drink this water, you will want more in the future, literally. He was also speaking of it in a spiritual, a symbolic sense. See, this woman was trying to find satisfaction in human relationships. Matter of fact, she'd been married and divorced several times over. And at that time, she was living with the man she wasn't even married to. And so Jesus proclaimed her, whoever drinks of this water will not thirst again. In other words, no man is ever going to meet the deepest needs in your life, lady. That's what he was telling her. There's no human relationship that will satisfy your inner longings because you were created to know God. And until you know God, you're still going to have that need unmet. And you can write that over the well of any of your life. You could write it over your well of your career, of your possessions, your experiences. If you drink of this water, you will thirst again. You're always going to want more. That's how the world is. Jesus says here, I thirst. Jesus was saying to that woman in John 4 when he asked for that drink of water. And here, once again, he's saying it on the cross. See, here's what it comes down to, beloved. Because Jesus thirsted, we don't have to. Because he died on the cross, we don't have to. He made it possible. He made a way for us to know God. No longer do we have to go on thirsting after empty things of this world. We can satisfy our thirst in a relationship with him. Jesus didn't want the painkiller that he was offered, the gall on the, on, the, on the cross, because he was bearing the weight of our sin, and he wanted to do it fully. If you've ever been under, under anesthesia, after the anesthesia wears off, can you imagine the pain that you're in after the operation? Can you imagine going through a crucifixion with no anesthesia? Amazing. Turned away the sedative because he wanted to bear the sin of the world. Well, having done that, he cried out his word, his, the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he said, I thirst. Statement number six, it's finished. It is finished. I mean, this is kind of like the battle cry of the cross. That's what it is. You know, throughout history... Certain countries and certain people, they have battle cries. Remember at Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, what was their battle cry? Torah, 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 right? When you think of people down in Texas, okay, their battle cry is what? Remember the Alamo. 
Even when you go over to Israel, when we were over in Israel and they took us up to Masada, we saw a bunch of Israeli soldiers up there. I said, what are they doing up here? They go, they bring them up here. Because it was on Masada where a thousand Jews gave up their life defending themselves against the Roman occupation. And they train those Israeli soldiers and they take them up there and they say, you know what, remember this, don't forget this. That's their battle cry. Well, the battle cry at the cross was this. The greatest and far most reaching battle cry ever told throughout history. The Son of God, as he's hung there on that cross, on the Roman cross over 2,000 years ago, cried out, it is finished. I don't know about you, but I get excited. You know, when, when you're working at a task and it's kind of maybe difficult or whatever, and you get to the end and you can say, whoa, I'm done. Isn't that a good feeling? Can you imagine bearing the weight of sin that Christ bore on the cross? Those who stood close, Mary, John, the Roman soldiers, and others, were not the only ones who heard these words. I believe it echoed throughout heaven. And I also believe that it echoed throughout the hallways of hell as well. And I think for the first time, Satan realized in his blind rage and jealousy, when he filled the heart of Judas Iscariot, caused him to betray Christ. You know what, he he unwittingly really played into the purpose and plan of the Father. God used him like a little pawn on a chessboard. Because the Bible says the Father was the one who determined long ago that God would come to this earth in the form of a man and would die on a cross. Suddenly, perhaps at that moment, it dawned on the devil that he had just helped fulfill prophetic scripture. He helped bring about the purposes of God. God works in mysterious ways. What was meant to destroy Jesus was now the ultimate destroyer of the devil himself. You know, in Genesis, it says, there is one coming who will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Battle lines were drawn from the very beginning. Satan knew there was one coming who would crush him. That's why he tried throughout history to stop it, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament. You see Satan constantly fighting against the coming Messiah. Well, it says it was finished. That means it's done. It was paid. It's performed. It's accomplished. What was paid? What was paid? The price of our redemption was paid, beloved. What was performed? The righteous requirements of the law. That's what was performed. And what was accomplished? All that the Father had given Jesus to do. He could finally say at the end of his life, you know what, I am done. The storm is over. It's finally passed. The devil had done all that he could to fight against it. But now it's over. The darkness has ended. It's finished. That's a victory cry. What was finished? Finished were the horrendous sufferings of Christ. No human being has ever gone under the sufferings that Christ had gone under as he went to the cross. Never again would he experience pain. Never again would he bear the sins of the world. Never again would he even for a moment be forsaken by God. Ever, ever, ever again. 
finished, were all the demands of the Mosaic law finished, were all those standards laid out in Scripture that we're unable to keep. I mean, it cracks me up. Some people talk today about the religion. You know, we well, go to church. No, 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 I just keep the commandments. Oh, you keep the commandments. What, what commandments? Oh, the Ten Commandments. Oh, you keep them? Oh, yeah. Really? I mean, that just fascinates me. Because the whole purpose of the, the law being given was not to keep it. It was given so that we could see that we can't keep it. I mean, if God would give us a bunch of rules and regulations and we just did that and that's how we were saved, well, then why would Jesus have to go to the cross? The whole reason he gave us the law, Romans tells us, is because of our own sinful nature, we can't save ourselves. God gave us the law so that we could see our inability to keep it. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken anything? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever taken the, the Lord's name in vain? Well, guess what? You just broke the law, pal. And the Bible says if you break it in one area, you broke the whole thing. You're guilty of the whole law. That's what James 2.10 says. Stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it. So don't go around saying, well, I just keep the Ten Commandments. That's silly. I mean, are you glad that Christ said it's finished? Aren't you glad that he, at the end of his life, at the end of his, his sacrifice, said it's done? He opened the, the door to our prison cells, beloved. So many people don't want to get up and walk out of the cell. The door is open. Remember in Acts 12 when Peter was in prison and the believers prayed for him and the angel of the Lord was sent to deliver him and the, the door of the prison was open? Well, what does the Bible say? It says that Peter had to get up and walk out the door. See, so many people in the world today don't believe that the door is open, that Christ paid for the sins of the world. Unfortunately, some people don't want to be freed from the vice that's strangling them, or some people don't want to change. Some people don't want to get out of the darkness and into the light. But let me tell you this morning on the authority of Scripture that if you want out of whatever is holding you back, whatever is burdening you down, if you want out or under, from under it, whatever it is, the door is open because Jesus Christ has paid the price. There's nothing more that can be done for you. He's already made available to you the power and the resources to be victorious over the power of sin. You're not going to be sinless. Nobody's sinless. But you can definitely, as a Christian, sin less. Your life can be transformed because of what he finished on the cross. Finished was our salvation. All of our sins were transferred to Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross and his righteousness was transferred to us. What an incredible transaction. That's why Isaiah 53, 6 said, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's nothing that you can do to add to or take away from the work that Christ has accomplished. It's been paid. Just like the hymn writer wrote, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. No more debts left. It's all paid. And he's done that for you. He's done that for me. Thank God for that sixth statement. It is finished. The last one quickly. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus then gives his seventh and his final statement from the cross. 
He says to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke 23, 46. Earlier on, Jesus said that no man takes my life. Remember that? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I also have the power to take it up again. John 10, 18. The Roman soldiers who came to break Jesus' legs were amazed that he had already died. Like I said, crucifixion was not a, a quick death. And that practice of breaking the legs was intended to prevent the one on the cross from pushing themselves up so they could still breathe. And after they broke their legs, usually the, 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 the criminal would just die almost immediately, within a matter of moments. But when they came to Christ, it wasn't necessary to break his bones, which fulfilled another scripture, by the way, did not one of his bones be broken. I mean, many significant events took place on the day that Jesus died. Three of the Gospels tell us that the veil in the temple was torn in two. The veil in the temple was some 36 inches thick. It was tightly woven. It was basically a, a woven wall of material to separate the Holy of Holies from the other sections of the temple. And it says that it was torn, not from bottom to top, beloved, but from top to bottom. America. Can you imagine all the worshipers in the temple at that moment? Oh, what's going on? Suddenly that huge veil began to tear from the top to the bottom. It wasn't a person doing it, it was God. God was saying, there's no more wall keeping you to access me. The barrier is removed because Christ finished what he did. He paid the price. In effect, God was saying that through the death of his son, we can have total access into his presence 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't know about you, but that makes me just jump for joy. I don't have to go to a priest anymore. I don't have to go to a pastor. I don't have to go to the church building. No, I have access directly to God 24-7 because of what Christ did. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which we consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, we have a high priest in the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. See, following the crucifixion of Christ, we have access to God, direct access it's amazing when you stop and think about it. The Lord finished his work. He committed his spirit to his Father. I can't help to think some 32 years ago when I first came to Christ, some of the people that I got to know as a Christian, and they were, I guess, Christians. I thought they were Christians. And try to look them up today, some of these people. And they're not walking with the Lord anymore. Matter of fact, they don't even do it. Matter of fact, some of them are just living total sinful lives. And I think about that. And I think, you know, sometimes when we think about heaven, when we finally get to heaven, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven. But I think there's going to be three that are going to be very clear to us. First of all, I think there's going to be a lot of people that we thought would be there that are not. I think we're going to be surprised. 
Secondly, I think there's going to be a lot of people we never thought would be there, but are. And I think the third thing, we're going to look around and go, wow, (laughs) we're here by his grace. So you can have a great beginning and a horrible ending. Just because you start well doesn't mean that you are going to finish well. But God wants you to have both a great beginning and a wonderful ending. There's people in the Bible that started out with a feeble beginning and ended gloriously. But one day, beloved, you're going to take your last breath. You're going to eat your last meal. You're going to speak your final words. And the Apostle Paul recognizes this. Knowing his life was coming to a close, he wrote this in 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but all to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul was saying that he finished the race that he had begun. I asked today, will you be able to say that? If not, you can change now. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and having sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep running that race. Look to Jesus. Consider what he went through for you. Those principles that are listed there in your outline. Do you realize that you're in need of the Father's forgiveness? Have you realized, confessed, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? The truth that Jesus is concerned for us and he provides for us. The fact that Jesus was forsaken so we don't have to be. Even his statement... I thirst, it's a personal statement. It reminds us that Jesus is not only God, but he's man. That he can identify with our needs. That he paid for our sins. And beloved, sin's control over us is broken. He wants you to entrust your life into his hands. Because he can be trusted to care for your soul. Father, we pray this morning. That as we have looked at these last dying words of Christ on the cross, Lord, we ask that your word will penetrate deeply into our hearts. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never committed your life to Christ. You don't know the forgiveness that I speak of. You don't know the assurance that I speak of when you die, when you go to heaven. Why don't you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? Turn from your sins. He says he'll forgive you. And not just one or two, but all of your sins. And we've all sinned in a myriad of ways. The Bible says that. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And you can finish well. And you can know that you're on your way to heaven. You can be secured in the fact that Christ promises you that you need his forgiveness if you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ 
My prayer is that you would do it before this day is over, before this service is over. Why not just take a moment, even now, bow your head and close your eyes. Turn your heart heavenward and ask God to forgive you of your sins, to save you. Cry out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that he will hear, beloved, when it comes from a sincere, repentant heart. And believers, I just pray that we would leave this place this morning knowing that God has called us not to be spectators, but to be participants in the sharing of his glorious, gracious gospel to a lost and dying world. That we would see many come to Christ through the power of his word and through our faithful preaching and teaching and sharing with those who have yet to be saved. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.